He's with us in the fire. And we're going to see today he's with us in the prison cell. That's where we're going to be in the book of Acts. So turn to Acts 16. We're going to finish up that chapter that we started last week. But as you're turning there, we're going to start in verse 19. You know, God leads us in different ways. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, the four of them are setting out on the second missionary journey, and God is in the middle of leading them. It starts out with a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. They had an issue. They couldn't get past it, and they disagreed, and they left it there. And so Barnabas took John Mark and sailed west to the island of Cyprus on a missionary journey. Paul took Silas and the other two men with him, and he headed north into Asia, Asia Minor, and then eventually, as we saw last week, Europe, and to the city of Philippi specifically. God leads through disagreements sometimes. God leads through closed doors often. God leads through visions sometimes. Um, He used a vision of the man in Macedonia to say, come on over here, we need to hear the gospel. And so God's leading is all part of the story in chapter 16 of how God led them on this journey. And as they traveled to the city, they met two women, very different. And as I mentioned last week, the method of sharing the gospel was different with each. The message is the same. It's always the same. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ and what he does for us. But the method changes. The way we present to different people at different times, different places, with different needs, the method changes. So with Lydia, upper class, she sold valuable things to people that were very wealthy. She moved in the upper crust circles of her day. She was very cosmopolitan. She was a businesswoman. She was well-respected. She was moral. She was a God-fearer. She was at a prayer meeting along the river. That's where Paul and Silas met with her. She was reading Scripture, Old Testament Scripture. She wanted to know God. She wanted to get to know more of who this God of Israel was, this one God, rather than the many gods of the pagans that she'd come out of. She was listening to Paul, hanging on his every word, and it says God opened up her heart to receive the gospel. There was a work of God on her behalf where she all of a sudden, through the Holy Spirit and through the work of Paul bringing the truth to her, she got it. It was like Jesus is the missing piece to the whole Old Testament Scripture. He's there, and Paul was able to talk about Jesus to her, and she got it, and she responded to the truth. But then, as he went to the prayer down to the river the following day, he met a wholly different person, a slave girl, a young woman, very low class, very outcast in her society. She was used by people in the community, businessmen, for her ability to forecast the future, and they used her. And she had no value in their eyes other than what she was able to bring to them. This, we see Satan here opposing the gospel. Instead of listening intently to Paul and Silas, she's yelling intently and screaming at them and about them. 
Satan is using a demon-possessed ventriloquist with the spirit of Python. How's that? That was last week. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I won't go into it. That was last week. But she was indwelt by this demon, and she was saying the right thing. She said, they are servants of the Most High God. They're telling you how to be saved. She was yelling this to people, but Paul says, I'm going to have none of that because the source of that is not God. The source of that is coming from the enemy of God. So she was diametrically opposed to the gospel. So Paul reached out to her and dealt with her. First need was to get rid of the demon that was in her life, and he cast that demon out. And he introduced her to a new master, someone who could love her and have control of her life rather than someone who hated her and wanted to see her life destroyed. And so bringing the gospel to her was a whole different world. And to be honest, we don't know in the passage whether she came to Christ or not. All we know is that she was freed up, that she was introduced to the gospel. We like to think and we hope that she did respond, but we don't know for sure. Today, we're going to see a third case study in evangelism, how to present the gospel in different means. A man, this Philippian jailer. So let's read the story. Verses 19 to 34 gives us this account of Paul and Silas and this jailer. When her owners, that's the slave girls, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they were not happy. Let's just put it that way. They seized Paul and Silas. They drug them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, pretty grave story right now. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Isn't that beautiful? There they are. And the other prisoners were listening to them. What is going on with those two guys? Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword. He was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Great question. They replied, here it is, simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. 
The jailer brought them into his house. He set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. What an incredible story of the power of the gospel in a person's life. Paul and Silas are seized, they're dragged into the marketplace where cases were heard. This was common. They were flogged, beaten with rods. All this without a fair trial. There was no, hey, what's going on? Are there any you know, witnesses to this? What, what is your case? None, none of that. There was just anger. The fact of the matter is their business had been hit hard because this, this young girl had been taken away from them, her ability to tell the future, and they were angry, and they wanted their lives, basically, at this point. The crowd, it says, that joined in the flogging. I mean, it's getting serious now. It's not just the magistrates, but the crowd's involved in this. It's getting pretty severe here. Now, remember, and this is going to come up, we're going to get to this more at the end of the story, but remember this, Paul and Silas are both Roman citizens. That's going to come into play later in the story, but it's true here. But they're not getting a fair listen. They're not getting a, a fair hearing in their case. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and 25, Paul speaks about some of his experiences and how much he had suffered. And you hear this a lot in Paul's writing, but here's just some verses that speak of this. He says, are they servants of Christ?" I'm out of my mind to talk like this. Now, in 2 Corinthians, he's defending his apostleship because there was accusations brought against him. So he's telling his story about who is he. He says, I am more. I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. Yeah, he has. I have been flogged more severely. Yeah, he just, he had been. And been exposed to death again and again. Three times in verse 25, I was beaten with rods. There it is. This is the story in this account in Philippi. Once I was pelted with stones. That was Lystra. They had stoned him to death, what they thought, but he wasn't really dead, only mostly dead, right? That was on his first missionary journey. So he revived, came back to consciousness, but he was stoned, literally. Three times I was shipwrecked. We're going to see that in the book of Acts later on in chapter 27. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Paul says, this is all part of the package of being this apostle who's bringing the gospel to people. And my story is this, and he just lists them out. And here it is. We read one of the accounts right here in the city of Philippi where he's just being beaten. One of the accusations, it says in verse 20, that these men are Jews. Okay, what's going on there? F.F. Bruce, who's a Christian historian, notes that Luke was a Gentile, Timothy half-Jewish, mother was Jew, father was Greek. Paul and Silas looked Jewish, and anti-Jewish sentiment lay very near the surface in pagan antiquity, meaning this, they just hated Jews. There was anti-Semitism alive and well in this place, in this area of Europe. And so that was, at the, that was a part of it that just, it just made them more and more angry. And these Jews, who are they bringing this religion? What they were really mad about was the lack of business. What they brought 
to the magistrates was they're introducing this religion that is anti-Roman, anti-state. It's anti-Caesar. They shouldn't be doing this. So they weren't really being honest with, their, with what was really going on. But underneath it all was they just didn't like them because they were Jewish. You know, put them in prison. This is the third time that in the book of Acts there's been a prison sentence. Chapter 5, it was all of the apostles were put in prison. And it says an angel delivered them. And they went back into the temple and they started preaching again. Then in chapter 12, it was Peter in prison. He was released and he went to the prayer meeting. Remember that story? Knocked on the door. Rhoda showed up. Didn't believe that he was really there at the Christian prayer meeting. Okay, so this is the third time now Paul and Silas are in prison again. But what's interesting about this story is this. An angel will not deliver them in this story. God's hand is going to play a part. There's going to be an earthquake. There's going to be an opportunity to be delivered. But they're going to actually be escorted out of prison by the authorities who put them in prison. Okay? Very interesting little difference here. We're going to get to that later in the chapter. But God was with them in the prison, just like he was with us in the fire. I love that song. The book of Daniel, chapter 3. He was with the three men in the fire, wasn't he? He was with them in prison. So in your note taker, the Philippian jailer, who, who was this guy? Who was he? Some, just some thoughts. Number one, ex-military. Why do I say that? It was very common in their time uh, to that retired Roman soldiers were given these civil service type jobs. And that was just a part of their culture. It made sense. They knew how to handle prisoners, being a Roman soldier. And so when he was retired, it was very traditional, very common to give these guys jobs like this, to man their prisons, to make sure that prisoners were dealt with in a very military sort of a way, in a very harsh sort of a way. So could very well be that he was ex-military. Probably your typical, like, blue-collar type person. Lydia, upper class, wealthy, traveled. The slave girl, very much the opposite. About as low as you can go in their society. The jailer was probably somewhere kind of in between, middle-class, blue-collar type worker who worked the prisons there, who worked the jails. But he was brutal. It says when they brought Paul and Silas to him. He put them in the inner sanctuary, inner cell, kind of the high security, maximum security area of the prison, and he put their feet in stocks. It wasn't just, hey, you're in prison. It's you're in prison and your feet are in the stocks. Again, F.F. Bruce, he says, these stocks had more than two holes for legs, which could be forced apart in such a way as to cause utmost discomfort and cramping pain. How does that sound like for a lovely evening in this prison? They're in the inner cell. Their feet are in the stocks. It was miserable. Lydia was affluent and a God seeker. The slave girl was lower caste, exploited, and spiritually troubled. This man was blue collar, ex-military, proud, self-sufficient, I can handle it type of a guy. He wasn't drawn to God and religion like Lydia. She was seeking God. 
He wasn't opposed either, like the slave girl yelling out against God's people. He was probably like a lot of people that you and I work with and we know and our neighbors. He was just indifferent. Going to work, doing what he was called to do, self-sufficient, I can handle it, life is good. Who's God? Why do I even care? So it's a little bit different story here. So how does Paul evangelize? How does Paul bring the gospel to this person who's, very, again, very different? 1 Thessalonians 2.2, I wanted to read this. It says, Paul is re- recounting this story in Philippi, and he says this in, to the Thessalonican church, Thessalonian church. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. Now, we're going to see in next week in chapter 17, Thessalonica is the next stop on the second missionary journey. He's going to go there next. So he's, he's going to reliving what had happened. As you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. The idea there is this word, and I mentioned it earlier on in the book of Acts, parousia. It's this courage, boldness. It's freedom of speech. It's the Holy Spirit giving them the courage and the power to speak the truth of God. And we've seen this in the life of Peter and John earlier in the book of Acts, and now we see it in the life of Peter. So how does Paul evangelize? Number one, number one, he shows them the gospel. They show the gospel, and number two, we're going to see him speaking the gospel. So showing the gospel, verses 25 through 29. It says, in the middle of this prison, their feet are in the stocks. They're very uncomfortable. It's very painful. It's miserable. What are they doing? They're praying. They're singing hymns to God. It's just this beautiful, I mean, this is a whole sermon to itself, It's this beautiful picture that is inspiring to me to know that instead of cursing God or their circumstances, they're praising God in spite of their circumstances. Do you see the difference? It wasn't that, hey, we're not here and we're we're living in some kind of weird utopia. It's we are here, but in spite of this, God is here. God is with them in the middle of this prison. His presence is there. Again, he's with them in the fire. He's with them in the prison. There's joy and peace in suffering. So the jailer and the other prisoners who were listening, they saw this in their life. There's something different about these two. I don't know what it is yet. There's just something different, but they're praising God in spite of the circumstances. There's a great Spurgeon quote. There's always a great Spurgeon quote. I came across this one, so I... Here it is. Any fool can sing in the day. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, Spurgeon says, but the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. You know, it's easy to sing when the sun's shining and the birds are chirping, And everything is hunky-dory and wonderful in my life. But in the night, it's very different, isn't it? That's a God thing. Songs in the night. 
So they show the gospel. This is the gospel in their lives. It's evidence. The second way they show the, the gospel is their kindness and forgiveness. What do I mean by that? Well, we read in verse 26, it's earthquake happens. Doors are open. Chains fall off people. This is the opportunity to get out of here. This is God's hand shaking violently this prison. It's supernatural. The timing is supernatural, and the fact that it opens doors and chains fall off because of the earthquake, that's God, okay? That's beyond just an earthquake at this point. But we're going to see in the story the earthquake has little to do with their escaping and more to do with the salvation of the jailer. Little to do with their escaping, although the opportunity's there, they don't take it, but it has more to do with getting the attention of that Philippian jailer. They didn't escape, but they chose to say to stay and encourage the other prisoners to stay. Not just them, but the other prisoners who could have easily escaped. They say, no, let's not do this. Let's stick around. The circumstances said, get the heck out of here. Here's your chance. Love said, stay. Stay here. There's something bigger than just our escape that God wants to do in this. And so they corralled everybody instead of running away like they easily could have. And it says the, the jailer comes in and realizes what could very well be, and it's going to cost him his life because he's responsible for these prisoners. He doesn't see anybody at first, and he gets his sword out, and he's ready to kill himself for honor's sake because that's where it's going to go if they have disappeared and they have escaped. But they spare the jailer's life by choosing not to flee. They choose not to pay him back for everything that he had, he had done to them. This idea of forgiveness is a powerful tool. If you want to shoot up that picture of the schoolhouse, maybe you're familiar with this story, Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. Does that ring a bell? The Amish school shooting in 2006. Do you remember that one with the gunman? Let me read an account of this and then explain why this plays into the story. On Monday morning, October 2nd, 2006, a gunman entered a one-room Amish school in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. In front of 25 horrified pupils, 32-year-old Charles Roberts ordered the boys and the teacher to leave. After tying the legs of the 10 remaining girls, Roberts prepared to shoot them with an automatic rifle and 400 rounds of ammunition that he had brought for the task. The oldest hostage, a 13-year-old, begged Roberts to shoot me first and let the little ones go. Refusing her offer, he opened fire on all of them, killing five, leaving the others critically wounded. He then shot himself as police stormed the building. His motivation? I'm angry at God for taking my little daughter, he told the children before the massacre. In the midst of their grief over the shocking loss, the Amish community didn't cast blame. They didn't point fingers. They didn't hold a press conference with attorneys at their sides. Instead, they reached out with grace and compassion toward the killer's family. Imagine. The afternoon of the shooting, an Amish grandfather of one of the girls who was killed expressed forgiveness toward the killer, Charles Roberts. That same day, Amish neighbors visited the Roberts family to com comfort them in their sorrow and pain. 
Later that week, the Roberts family was invited to the funeral of one of the Amish girls who had been killed. Think about this. And Amish mourners outnumbered the non-Amish at Charles Roberts' funeral. What? What is going on? What kind of forgiveness is this? What is in the heart of these people to cause them to reach out in, in grace and compassion? In a study done by sociologists on the reason for the forgiveness of the Amish people, people looked into this and wondered, how could they do this? It's way beyond the scope of forgiveness. Here's what they concluded. It came from two sources. Number one, the example of Jesus Christ. The Amish people understood forgiveness to be a central principle of their faith and their life and Christ's example on the cross of his forgiveness to the soldiers who were killing him. Number two, self-renunciation versus self-assertion. Denying oneself, giving up one's rights, allowed them to forgive rather than seeking revenge or financial restitution. That's a powerful, powerful story. When we forgive, when we understand God's grace in our lives and we're able to give it to other people, that is a huge testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ in people's lives. It speaks volumes. It spoke volumes. It was on the news. I remember hearing the story and seeing pictures of these people going to his funeral, the murderer, the man who had shot and killed five of these young girls in this in this schoolhouse. And I remember how moved I was and how convinced, convicted I was of forgiveness. But it's such a powerful thing. And here, Paul and Silas, they could have run. They could have ended this, this jailer's life, but they chose to stay and save his life. That's forgiveness and kindness. But they also spoke the gospel. You know, it's one thing to live the gospel, and we should. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said that. We are salt, we are light. You are the light of the world, right? Yes, do that. But we always need to speak also along with it. So the two go together. Verses 30 through 32. The jailer saw the power of God in the lives of the two prisoners and in the earthquake, both. They were both there. And verse 30, he runs in there and he gets down and he says, what must I do to be saved? Now a lot of Bible scholars say at that point he was only asking, what can I do to save my physical life? And yeah, that's probably on his mind, but I think he had something much deeper and much more important than just his physical life. I think he was asking, how can I come to know the God that I've seen in your life? How can I be saved spiritually? The reason is no prisoners had escaped and there's really no punishment from his supervisors at this point. His life was not in danger anymore because they stayed. So he's, again, he's not reaching out for his physical life. He's asking, how can I be saved? And I love verse 31 because of its simplicity, believe. It's not something you can do. What must I do, right? That was the question. It's the wrong question. It's not what you can do to earn salvation. It's what's already been done by someone who loves you greatly 
that you can trust in for your salvation. Remember the great exchange last week? 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, God, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Our sin went on him on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I give my sin, goes on to Christ, he takes it to the cross, he lived a perfect life. I give him the mess, I give him my sin. He gives me, simply by my faith and believing in him, he gives me the righteousness of God that is in him. I am in Christ when I believe in him. That's, that's the gospel. It's just this beautiful thing. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your house. Now he's not saying to the jailer, look, if you believe in Jesus Christ, everybody's covered under you. That's not what he's saying here. But what he is saying is that just like you can receive Jesus Christ by believing, so can everybody that's in your house. Now that would have included family, that would have included servants, that would have included maybe friends that would have been staying in his house, household, but it's available to all of you. John 3, verses 14 to 16. I love the song that we sang earlier, by the way, on John three sixteen. It's so simple and beautiful. But here is the verses right up to that. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Wow. John 3.14 speaks of the serpent in the wilderness, the bronze serpent that was put up on a pole. And the command was, those who had been bitten by the snake, all they had to do was look. Some of them would have been able to walk over to the pole, maybe, but a lot of them were in such bad condition that all they could do was look. This is the great leveler in that salvation is available to all people regardless. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is look and trust. Simply looking to Jesus for salvation It's free, it's unmerited. Everyone is on the same level before God. Doesn't matter who you are, where you're coming from, whatever. Verse 32 is important, though, because it says he went on and he spoke the word of God. He spoke the word of the Lord to them. So, believe. It's simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, period. However, there's more you need to know. So he spoke about Jesus Christ. He spoke about the cross. He spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He spoke about all of the things that all of us need to know about Jesus. So it's not just believe and you're done and it's over. It's believe and the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. Romans 10, right? We need that. So he spoke. He gave him the rest of the story the rest of the gospel. The jailer responds to the gospel. How? What are three marks of a true belief? Verses 33 and 34. Well, the first one is, true belief makes one compassionate. Look what he does. At that hour of the night, in the middle of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. 
He had been brutal to them up to this point. He didn't care about them all the way up to this point. Something's changed in his heart. He cares for them. He washes their wounds. They're people to him. Maybe for the first time. His heart's changed, right? He'd come to know Christ. He's compassionate. Then he takes them and prepares a meal. Now, in their culture, the jail most likely would have been right next to his house, adjoining. So it would have been right there, and that's where he was probably sleeping when he heard, felt the earthquake and rushed to find what he found. But he takes them, this is fascinating to me, so he takes them over to his house, prepares this beautiful meal. These are prisoners. Then they march back to the jail until the next morning. You see how ridiculous this is getting to be? He showed compassion on them. That's what faith does in our lives. True belief makes one committed to the community. Why do I say that? Because in 33b it says they were baptized. Him and his whole household, they were baptized into the name of Christ, but also into the community of Christ. That's what baptism really is. It's identification with Christ as a believer in him, but it's also identification with the body of Christ, the community of believers. Christianity is personal, but it's not private. What do I mean by that? In regards to salvation, it's very personal. I stand before God individually, personally, in regards to salvation. God has no grandchildren. You've heard that before, right? He has children. It's a direct relationship. So it's very personal. It's me standing before God, but it's not a private thing. In regards to walking this life, in regards to growing in my faith, we link arms together in the body of Christ and we walk. We walk down this path together. I don't isolate myself at home and go, I'm good. It's just me and God. No, it's us. It's the community of believers. True belief brings me into the community, and I love the community. Hebrews 10.25, don't give up on meeting together, as is the habit of some. Some are doing this. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching, don't stop meeting together. Come to church. Be a part of the body of Christ. Be in small group. Be in community together. That's how you grow. That's important. True belief gives joy. Look at verse 34. Their hearts were just full of joy. I had a great friend, and I love him. His name was Bob Harris. You remember Bob. He passed away way too soon. But he used to always say in our men's group, and every time he'd see me, he said, Ken, if there's not joy at the heart of your Christian faith, there's something wrong with your Christian faith. Amen, brother. If there's not joy in my heart... As a believer in God, there's something wrong with my heart. There's something going on there, and I need to come to God with it. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. 1 Peter 1 is one of those passages of Scripture I preached on it last Easter because it's just full of joy. It's just full of all the blessings we have in a resurrected Christ. And it's, we lose our joy when we lose sight of that. Who is Jesus? What has he done for us? What do we have in him? That's where our joy comes from. 
What do we learn from this story? I want to leave you with three things, and I'm going to move pretty quickly here. The gospel is for everybody. That was the story of the book of Luke. That is the story of the book of Acts. Everyone needs the gospel. We have Lydia, we have the slave girl, we have the jailer. Racially, Lydia was Asian, the slave girl was Greek, the soldier was Roman. Economically, Lydia was upper class. The girl, she was in the lowest class. The jailer was in the middle. Religiously, Lydia was seeking. The slave girl was demonically hostile, opposed to. The jailer was just indifferent. Socially, highly respected, Lydia disdained the slave girl, feared the Roman soldier. Personality-wise, gentle, that's Lydia, mental, brutal for the jailer. How's that? Their approach to life and the way to reach them, rational with Lydia, she wanted to learn more. So that's what Paul did. He taught. Intuitive and emotional, that was the life of this slave girl. She just went with how she felt in the moment. Concrete relational, that was more the style of the Roman jailer. All of these things, they were, you could not be any more different than these three, but yet all of them needed the transforming work of the gospel in their lives. They all were coming at it from totally different perspectives. The gospel is true freedom. Let's pick it up in verse 35. Look what it says. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with that order, release those men, let them out. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. It's all good, right? But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without trial, even though we are Roman citizens. They threw us in prison. Now do they want to just get rid of us quietly like it never happened? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. Doggone it. They're not going to get rid of us that easily and that quietly. Let them come and lead us out, okay? The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. Please, we're sorry. You know, you can see them just coming and crawling to them and going, we have messed up here. What is, what is really going on? The reality is, Paul and Silas, they were Roman citizens. They had been falsely accused. They'd been illegally beaten. They'd been unjustly imprisoned without a fair trial. By Roman law, if you inflicted corporal punishment on a Roman citizen, it was a violation of, you were breaking the Roman law. Two things could happen here. Number one, these magistrates could be removed from office and fired. Number two, the whole city, Philippi, could lose its privileges as a Roman colony. This was huge. They had messed up in a very tall order, so they came on their hands and knees begging and saying, we are so sorry, we did not mean to do this. I think Paul and Silas bring this up at the end, and some of the commentaries were like, why did they wait until the very end to bring this idea that they were citizens of Rome up? A lot of them seem to think they bring it up at the end to give the magistrates attention, to scare them, to create some space for the church in Philippi, to get them to think twice the next time they want to persecute these Christians. And I think it played in beautifully into that. But there's an irony in this. Paul and Silas were the ones truly free. The people of Philippi, the, 
the Roman jailer, they were the ones that were really imprisoned. There's this amazing irony. It's a picture of Christ, how he was imprisoned for us, how he was flogged for us, how he was punished for you and me to give us freedom. It's, again, it's the gospel story. But look at verse 40. The gospel unifies. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. The gospel is the most unifying power in the world today. This scene at Lydia's house, the church meeting together. Philippians 1 verse 1 Paul is writing to the Philippian church, and he writes to the Christians, you saints, you called out ones, you elected ones, and he says to the overseers and deacons. The church had moved from just being a house where Christians were gathered to a church where there were elders, overseers. There were deacons working alongside, serving. There were church offices. They were an up-and-running church by the time he writes the epistle. But this is Lydia's house. They're meeting together. There was a well-known prayer in Jesus' day that had really come earlier, probably during the Babylonian captivity somewhere, but there was a prayer that was prayed by Jewish men, and it was well-known, and it said this, Lord, you are the great creator of this earth, and I thank you that that I was not created a woman, that I was not created a slave, and that was not created as a Gentile. Now, why do I bring that prayer up? Because of this. In this house, in this church, we have women. We have slaves, the slave girl, probably others. We have Gentiles. This is the new people of God bringing people together. There is no barrier. There is no division anymore. There's unity. The church, we're all saved. We all stand in his presence on the same level. That's what the gospel tells us. I want to end with this, and then Brother John's going to come up for communion. This is called Touched by Jesus. And again, we don't know um, if the slave girl was there or not. So this says Lydia and the, the guard. In Philippi, Paul and Silas left behind two notable converts, Lydia and the guard. Each of these two had their lives touched by Jesus in very different ways. Lydia was a churchgoer. The guard was not. Lydia was prospering in business. The guard was about to kill himself by his own sword. Lydia's heart was gently opened. The guard's heart was violently confronted. The guard had a remarkable sign, an earthquake. But all Lydia had was the move of the Holy Spirit in her heart. Both heard the gospel and believed, and through each of them, their whole families were touched. Amen? It's about unity that we come to the Lord's table this morning.